Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Investing in the retail market. Tricky? Well, ask Scott Rothbord. He is the president of Lakeview Asset Management. He joins us now. And Scott, you've uh, been a veteran coming on the program to give us your thoughts about the retail industry, the restaurant industry, and so on. But well, I noticed that a lot of it has to do, obviously, with the consumer. And um, let's start off. Where do you think right now the consumer is spending money and not spending money vis-a-vis these, uh, these areas of the market? Well, I think the consumer is spending money on um, a lot of household-related items. I think finally consumers, after many years, are buying houses, fixing up houses. Look, you know, they, they took a terrible hit in 2008, 2009. A lot of people were displaced from their houses. Uh, but the market is coming back, and people are starting to buy durable goods, uh, washing machines. Um, they're, they have been buying cars for all. I think that's, that's beginning to kind of, you know... Uh, end in terms of the surge in, in the purchase of, of, of those items. The, the, one, the one area that, that they continue to stay away from is apparel. And, and that has really been boggling a lot of investors and analysts because the apparel market continues to be um, uh, very difficult to invest in. Um, and of course, what what invest uh, what 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 the consumer is, continues to invest in are these electronic gadgets, um, whether it's games or it's smartphones or tablets. Uh, but wearables is a big market that is only going to expand in time. So. Um- you invest money on behalf of wealthy individuals. Uh, you also are a professor at Seton Hall University. Um, looking at this environment, how do you determine where the opportunities are when there's such a macro uh, overlay on this, not only from the consumer spending standpoint, but also from uh, technological advancements and how much, how quickly some of these even retailers have to catch up? Right. Well, th- there's a lot of disruptive events that are taking place in the retail markets. Okay, probably the one that people are most familiar with is online. Amazon uh, is probably the most disruptive element. Versus Walmart. Correct. Jet.com. Yes. Warren yes, Buffett. Versus everyone. Let's well, be honest. Right, but, and, but, but, and the but, news but, today, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, uh, exiting more of his Walmart stake. And, and it makes sense. Um, look, I... I it, would you buy Walmart? Walmart? Uh, you know, I, I, I look at Walmart for the dividend. I might buy it if it came down a little bit for our dividend strategy. Um, because it meets some of the criteria for our different strategy. In terms of growth, there's no growth in Walmart. Um, so, so we have Amazon as one of the disruptors. Dividend developments. just a fair two point eight percent. Price is seventy bucks a share, right? Yes, now. and 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 and, and for Walmart. I, I'd rather see that dividend close to three percent. But at two point eight percent, it's beating the S and P average dividend, which is just around two percent, maybe even slightly less than that right now. Although you have Treasury yields rising, so if you just want the dividend, you could just invest mm-hmm. in a ten year Treasury and get three percent. You could, but then you you won't get the benefit of economic growth. Um, and if you invest in the 10-year treasury, you'll be locked into that for the next 10 years. And if you need to take your money out of that treasury as interest rates rise, you're going to wind up, as a lot of people are learning, that the price of bonds can go down 
All right, so let's go through so let's go some back. names, all right? Let's okay. go through okay. some names. All right, so sure. Walmart, you like for the dividend. Who else? Let's go through. I was thinking of you, oh. and I thought uh, Sonic and Chipotle. by the way. 30 right. years, three years, but 30 10 years year, yeah. at 2.3%. Thank Carry you. Yeah, we sorry. Almost, all right. <laughs> fell off that that's, cliff. That's, that's okay. So, yeah, we're rec- um, look, you, you know, we, we, we run a restaurant portfolio. Um, the name that always comes up is Chipotle. What's going on with Chipotle? Yeah, what happened? But, you know, Chipotle has lost its way. Okay. Um, I put Chipotle in, 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 in the um, the penalty box after they had all these problems in terms of uh, 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 you know the diseases that people were getting by eating there, but and 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 the CEO came out yesterday and said, look, we're we're just not providing the type of service that is consummate with what people are expecting from us. But this is the company that's lost its way. Now I'm going to be very cynical with what I'm about to say. Stocks down twenty three percent so far this year. It's going lower. Okay. All right. Um, three sixty seven. Uh, yeah, right I mean, now. you know, they're, they're they're starting to develop these smaller concepts like Shop House, which is a an Asian fusion concept, uh, a pizzeria concept, uh, and now they're going to go into the burger market. Um, and I'm saying to myself, why? Um, why are they doing all this? Why are you going into the pizza and burger market, two of the most saturated markets out there? Uh, you know, what what edge does Chipotle have? And in the meantime, I look at the Chipotle restaurant itself, and the menu hasn't changed in years. You know, Pim and I, we've talked about McDonald's ad nauseum, I think. And what <clears throat> helped McDonald's from 2003 to 2013 was that they changed the menu. They they didn't mind tinkering with well, the Well, they menu. did the McCafe, and then they're even now trying to retransition well, the, the McCafe Well, now they're looking to roll it out exactly. independently. But but I think Chipotle, um, they need to take a second look. I, and, and I know they, they, that they talk about food with integrity, but the problem with Chipotle is that um, that's coming around to haunt them right now. Um, one of the fastest growing menu items, if you go to restaurants, um, is fish tacos. So I said a long time ago, on, on this program, as a matter of fact, you know what, Chipotle, offer a fish product. <laughs> so for Chipotle, the fish taco will be uh, the Egg McMuffin for McDonald's. Uh, Scott Rothbart, thank you so much for being with us. Scott Rothbart, president and founder of Lakeview Asset Management. Tim Fox, we have been talking a lot today about the drop in biotech shares, the end of the uh, fervor in the wake of Donald Trump's election as the next U.S. president. Somebody who has been predicting this for weeks now is Max Neeson of Bloomberg Gadfly, and we are lucky enough to have him in studio with us to talk a little bit about uh, whether this is just the beginning of a sell-off or or whether, you know, what we can glean from today. So, Max, thanks so much for joining us. So can you just Set the, set the backdrop here. It was a tweet by Trump. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So what happened is uh, in an interview with Time, uh, Trump was quoted as saying, I'm going to bring down drug prices. I don't like what's happened with drug prices. Uh, so I think this is really a bit of a return to reality for the sector, which had something of a rally in the aftermath of Trump's election. There's kind of this blanket assumption that uh, Trump is better than Clinton, um, more lenient drug pricing policy, fewer nasty tweets about pro- uh, price hikes. They kind of expected Trump to uh, govern as a kind of a doctrinaire Republican. Well, lo and behold, he's a populist. People hate high drug prices, and uh, they hate drug price hikes. So uh, it's not all that surprising to me that he would kind of pick up on this as an issue uh, to kind of um, make a run at. 
Pfizer down two and a half percent, AbbVie down three and a half percent, Bristol Myers Squibb down two and a half percent, Eli Lilly down one and a half. I could keep going. Merck down two, Johnson and Johnson down. Is this a buying opportunity? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that it is because even those big names that you mentioned, well, they haven't done the sort of extreme price hiking that you saw from kind of more notorious form, firms like Valiant. They do, to some extent, rely on your kind of annual, biannual, 10 or more percent price hikes on some of their older drugs as they try to kind of fill in the gaps in their research pipelines. So there's kind of a fundamental drug pressure, uh, drug pricing pressure, even beyond what you're seeing uh, from, you know, rhetorically or potentially on the policy side as uh, pharmacy benefit managers get more aggressive about levering competition and negotiating price, uh, prices down on drugs. So th- there's really fundamental pressure. It's not just noise, I think. Uh, President-elect Trump is is one thing, and it's unclear how much exactly he'll have his hands in the day-to-day policies that, that uh, govern drug pricing. But we do know that Dr. Tom Price, Georgia Republican uh, representative, is going to be the head of the Department of Health and Human Services, barring something uh, unexpected. Do we have a sense of what his policy is with respect to drug pricing? So I think it would be a bit more of a surprise if he was particularly aggressive on the policy front. And that's really the big question right now. If uh, Trump's comments today actually feed through into his administration's policy or into how he directs price. And, um, you know, it's a little bit hard to imagine that the Senate lawmakers and, and price are suddenly going to reverse course and really aggressively uh, start to legislate on drug prices or for Trump to join hands with Senate Democrats to uh, do something about it. But I think something that we've really learned over the course of this campaign and the past year is that it doesn't necessarily take concrete policy action to uh, drive down the prices of these shares. All it takes is a tweet. All it takes is this kind of comment. And I think if we see more of this over the next few years, this sense of uncertainty, this sense that he might pop off at any point, I don't think it'll necessarily matter uh, quite so much that that Price has not been an outspoken critic of drug prices. Um, Is there a particular company, biopharmaceutical company, that will suffer the most from potential restrictions of, of drug price hikes? Um, I think it's pretty broadly based because everyone's exposed. You've got these big companies like Pfizer that uh, hike prices on their older drugs. You've got new companies that are hoping to set their prices uh, really high when they actually hit the market. Um, And then you've got companies with drugs on the market that are seeing uh, the uptake of their drugs restricted, basically. And uh, the really the unf- unfortunate trade-off when it comes to lowering drug prices is if you want to lower prices, you have to lower access for people. If everyone can get all the drugs they want um, and you don't put any restrictions in place, it becomes really hard to enforce any lower drug prices. So I think it's really going to be a, a broad-based issue. Can I take you down to uh, the health insurance industry for just a second and Absolutely. Uh, get, get me get to get us all your thoughts uh, there? Because I'm just looking for example at Humana uh, shares are down about one and a quarter percent. Uh, who benefits then? I mean, is it is it the insurance companies? What about them? Um, they might see some benefit from lower prices if they get a bit more power to push for rebates or, or generally just have to pay less for drugs. That's good. But in a broader sense, for insurers, I, I think this is just a 
this is a case where it might be a buying opportunity, just a general sell-off in healthcare stocks, nothing in particular that would indicate that this has any negative read-through to insurers. Um, you know, Max, something that you were talking about, the fact that shares would drop so much and so uniformly on one Twitter post is is indicative in and of itself. And I, I think that that's an important point. I mean, biotech was accused uh, back in 2015 of being in a bubble. We had the Fed actually uh, naming the biotech industry specifically. Uh, it has come down substantially since then. But does this sort of underscore how difficult it is to really place a value on some of these companies and how that's a problem for stock investors? I, I mean, it, it couldn't possibly be more difficult. That, that's what's so much fun about this sector that uh, there, there's such a wide variety of things. I mean, you you have companies that are placing, you know, they're completely binary propositions. The trial is going to read out or it won't. The drug will be commercially successful or you won't. And you're really making your best guess because, you know, unless you're a, a trained scientist with particular insight into a company's drug candidate, you know, you're you're really kind of making a broad guess. So it's it's really risky to bet on the sector. It's just such a kind of a risk on move that, you know, we, we think this is going to go well, or there's going to be a broad policy push that's going to help these things. So anything negative um, really has a disproportionate effect. And I think we're seeing that today and have seen that throughout the year. Any any hope for these investors? I mean, just get out now? I, I think there is some hope that, you know, this is probably a bit of a, you know, a, you know so this thing we thought was going to happen. Reaction. that yeah, that the GOP was going to, you know, that Trump and the GOP were going to be way more friendly. Now it might not. Everyone kind of panics. But it might, um, in the, the great Trump tradition, be be all words and no action. So that's something definitely to, to watch out for. And if you're an optimist, uh, to maybe bet on. Well, and also, if you're a chief executive, uh, just be aware that you're going to be kept on your toes, I guess, with uh, this barrage of communication via tweet. Yeah, and the NASDAQ Biotech Index is down more than 28% since the peak last year uh, on July 20th, 2015. Something to note. Max Neeson, thanks very much for coming in and sharing all your knowledge with us. Always a pleasure, Max uh, Neeson, expert when it comes to uh, pharmaceuticals, healthcare, and all things science for us here at Bloomberg. Taking a look in North Dakota, there's been an ongoing confrontation between protesters and law enforcement over the Dakota Access Pipeline Sunday. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, at the direction of Obama and his administration, President Obama, uh, said that it would refuse to grant the final permit needed to complete the $3.8 billion project. I want to bring in Brandon Barnes. He's Senior Litigation Analyst for Energy at Bloomberg Intelligence, coming to us from Washington, D.C. Brandon, is it likely that the Dakota Access Pipeline's owners could overturn this refusal uh, in short order? In other words, how big is the hurdle for them to now move forward with this project? Well, it's uh, their pathways have changed a little bit now. They're kind of down to two. So they've got one in the courtroom, which has been ongoing since the tribes actually sued Army Corps earlier in the year. And that continues. There's a big status conference coming up at the end of this week. They also have the opportunity, potentially, if uh, President-elect Trump uh, wants to reverse the decision on the Army Corps, for him to influence that decision and revisit that once he's in office. Now, let's just set the scene here. This is Bakken shale oil that is going, or the plan is, to pipe it underneath the Mississippi River, correct? 
That's right. Okay. And there are already pipelines underneath the Mississippi River in the vicinity of where they have sited this Dakota pipeline. That's right. They'd be running parallel to an existing natural gas pipeline. So if it would be running in parallel to an existing natural gas pipeline, why has this become such a big issue? Is am I, I was just reading, an, by the way, an op-ed uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal by the Congressman uh, Kramer, uh, Kevin Kramer, of uh, he's a Republican in, from North Dakota. He says it doesn't even touch uh, tribal land. That's right. It's, so there are a lot of different conceptions flowing out there, and, and a lot of them are misconceptions. So the, the threat here from crude is different than what you would have from natural gas if it were to leak out of a pipeline, because natural gas dissipates um, relatively quickly when it hits water. So um, this is all about water worries and those who are downstream of uh, this pipeline crossing, which would be the uh, Standing Rock tribe and others. Um, so what, what is this dispute really about? Well, it depends uh, whether you're on the ground with the protesters and sort of the more celebrity aspect with the public or if you're in the courtroom. Because I think once it boils down to the legal fight, is this is whether the tribe actually can come in and assert some of these issues in front of a court when it's not actually crossing their land. And to what extent Army Corps has the authority to move the pieces around once it appears that they've already made their decisions. So in other words, do they have standing? Do they have standing to even block this? Well, and, then, and do they have the kind of claims without the crude actually leaking to come in and, and ask the court to do something? Right, to forestall something that may or may not happen in the future. Exactly. The uh, question then to you is, do they already have other legal actions against the pipeline operators because, uh, that are already upstream from that water supply? Because it seems as though you've got refined product, uh, as you said, gas, uh, transmission lines and so on. Isn't that all upstream of the water? Yes, certainly. They've And there have been fights over water and water withdrawals uh, in the past related to, to, these res- uh, to these reservations and these tribes. But this, um, you know, this is sort of the first concerted effort we've seen from um, from one of the tribes in the Midwest and in that area where most of the opposition we've seen has come out of the Northeast. Interesting. So just based on the legal uh, issues standing, um, what do legal experts give as far as the the chances that this will keep going through and it will be a reality? Well, if we're talking about just the courts, um, ETP uh, and, and Dakota Access, the project, have filed a motion for summary judgment, which is basically a motion to end the case on just the, the, the legal aspects of it. And they have a pretty good argument that Army Corps has, in effect, constructively already issued this easement based on everything they've already said and the decisions they've reached on other permits. Um, and so I think that the odds right, right now favor ETP and the, and the project in the courts. Brendan Barnes, thank you very much. A senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, when we want results when it comes to technology and the confluence of money and technology, we turn, we turn to Shira Ovide. And she is our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist and joins us now in studio. Great to see you as always, Shira. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want you to just dial back the news cycle for just a moment and tell us what you believe or what we know about 
a meeting between President-elect Donald Trump and Masayoshi San, who is the founder of SoftBank, which happens to also, I believe, be the majority shareholder and controlling interest in Sprint. That's right. So the two met yesterday in Trump Tower during this, you know, endless series of Trumpy meetings. And uh, afterwards, Donald Trump tweeted that Masasson uh, committed to investing $50 billion in the United States and to creating 50,000 jobs in this country. Did uh, Masasson edify or, or sort of confirm uh, President-elect Trump's tweets? Uh, so like most political policy statements given in 140-character bursts, uh, this one from Donald Trump has um, lots of bogus elements. So let's take the $50 billion number first. So uh, Masson confirmed later that the $50 billion figure was uh, basically a reference to a pre-existing announcement that they, he and others made in uh, earlier this fall about a $100 billion investment fund in startups around the world. Includes uh, uh, money from Saudi Arabia, for correct. example. Correct. Includes right? money from Saudi Arabia. In fact, the majority of money in that fund is not from SoftBank itself, but from Saudi Arabia and others. So the $50 billion figure seems merely to be confirming that they'll spend half or so of that $100 billion fund in the United States, which is natural given the prevalence of the tech industry here in the U.S. Okay, but I mean, it is true, it, or, or it is at it, least possible in the way that possibly, you would describe it is possibly initiative. It is possibly true. Okay. Yes, which is, you know, not not nothing, well, although $50 again, billion dollars is, uh, I don't know that Trump can claim credit for that $50 billion investment. But he is publicizing it in a different way. He is way. correct. Well, I, I'm talking just more broadly about uh, President-elect Trump's uh, engagement with the tech industry. He's holding a meeting with a lot of tech executives. Um, are we getting any hints of what different sides are hoping will come of that? It should be very interesting to see what happens when the tech community and Trump get together. This is an, uh, Technology is an industry that maybe more than any other was horrified by the election of Donald Trump. You know, they sort of felt both politically and culturally that Trump does not stand for what they believe the tech industry stands for. A lot of them uh, opposed Trump's campaign publicly with their checkbooks also. So I, it'll really be well, interesting to see what Apple happens now. was uh, public in his support of uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, as I, as I recall. I want to just get your thoughts just a little bit more on Sprint, you know, connected mm -hmm. with a SoftBank. Sprint shares, after that was announced in the tweet, I guess, up 1.5%. Uh, now you've got uh, the shares are up about 6%. So clearly somebody believes that there is a value in having the ear of the president-elect. That's exactly right. So the issue here is that Masasone has made no secret of his desire to merge Sprint with T-Mobile, two uh, mobile companies, that under the Obama administration that has not been possible for regulatory reasons. So the hopes are that with this new administration in Washington, Sohn can finally make that merger, which would probably lead to significant savings at Sprint, um, ironically, probably via significant job losses. And it would be something based maybe on your reporting that uh, John Ledger, the chief executive of T-Mobile has already uh, entertained, let's say. Yeah, I, I think th probably there's desire on the part of both Sprint and T-Mobile to do that merger if regulators would allow it.
That's just so fascinating. And would 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 President elect Trump unilaterally be able to sort of see that thing through? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know, right? These are decisions that are made by regulatory bodies, not the White House. But obviously, the president of the United States has control over who runs federal agencies like the FCC. Uh, just, to, just to switch topics just a little bit, since we have you here, uh, Verizon announced yesterday that it plans to sell uh, 29 of its data centers for $3.6 billion. And typically when you hear data centers and this, you know, you sort of like your eyes glaze over and it's like, well, we care why. Um, but you depends. made it really interesting. Depends who you are. You know. well, it depends who you are. I like data I, centers. You wrote, my eyes open you wrote a story that had the most fantastic lead ever. Here's a curse to hurl at your worst enemy. Me. May you be forced to operate data centers. Why is it such a problem? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit ironic because nobody thinks about data centers. I agree with you. Uh, Come I'm on, sure. you agree. You cover tech and you can I understand you. why people's eyes glaze over. I hear you. It is not, uh, you know, jetpacks and, and drones delivering packages to your door. It is boring. But data centers are the essential components of everything we do online. These are, you know, giant buildings packed with computer servers. Without them, we could not order an Uber, we could not send an email, we could not do anything. The problem is the economics of the computer industry are changing to the point where owning these essential engines of the digital age is an incredibly difficult business, unless you are Google, Amazon, Facebook, and a handful of other rich tech companies. And Verizon found that out, basically. And I believe at one point they were putting server farms in cold locations in order to save money and also to increase performance because it mattered. I mean, that is part of the innovation that the giant tech companies have brought to this business, that one of the biggest expenses of owning buildings packed with computer servers is that those servers get really, really hot from all the calculations they're doing. And it is cheaper if you put those buildings in cold weather locations where you pay less to cool down those buildings. So you're it, talking Canada and Canada, well, Scandinavia, Scandinavia, Oregon. Right. And I think I, and just before, I, we got to ask you, the um, uh, Qualcomm, Intel, uh, I keep thinking Snapdragon for Qualcomm because that's what goes in the mobile phone, but that's this right. is a different kind of chip. Yeah, th this is this is a big deal. Another one of these nerdy tech things that no one will care about, but is incredibly important. So uh, Qualcomm, uh, Intel is the computer chip company that makes every personal computer chip and has basically 100% market share of the computer chips that go in those computer servers and data centers. And that's been a great business for Intel. The central thesis of investing in Intel is because of their dominance in these um, computer server chips. So Qualcomm, which is Intel's big rival, said today, we have produced these chips for computer servers that, at least in principle, are competitive with what Intel is doing. And that should be um, a, 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 a big scare. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.